I want to extend my welcome as well. If you're new, uh, my name's Bland. It's, uh, it's actually good to be back uh, here. I was traveling a couple weeks ago speaking, and then last weekend was with some of you out at the re- uh, retreat up in New Hampshire. Um, and so it's actually good. I miss, I didn't realize how much I miss just gathering with the church and worshiping on uh, here. So um, it's good to be back. Uh, we are in a series, as been mentioned, uh, through the Gospel of John, and uh, to give you, we've been trying to uh, provide notes, that sermon notes, for people. Uh, right now, we're still using a QR code, so if you, especially for those in this service who English is your second language, and you're going to have a problem following me, you're going to do much better than I would following you in your uh, <laughs> your heart language. But um, if you have any struggles like following me, um, you can scan this code. Uh, if you if you want to have these notes for yourself for later, they're going to be on the homepage of the app today. So if you're a CG leader or a member of a CG, don't worry about scanning this right now. You, they're going to be on our app uh, on the homepage. Uh, they'll be updated later today at some point. So in the meantime, if that's helpful for you, please feel free to, to scan that. Back in 2011, uh, some of you who've been around uh, know that I, I, was, uh, I served with a ministry called Baseball Chapel for, for about 10 years, 11 years, um, and I was serving them as the uh, chaplain to the, the Boston Red Sox. Um, and during that time, uh, Teresa and I were involved with uh, some other ministries or connected with some other ministries that serve professional athletes, and that one of these ministries holds an annual conference after the baseball season just for baseball players, major league, minor league, uh, literally, there's usually like four or 500 um, play, uh, uh, players and their wives that come to this and it's held, I mean, just as you would think for professional athletes, it's not held at Motel 6. Um, it is a very nice, it was at a very nice resort in Orlando. And they invited Teresa and I to come for free. They were going to pay our airfare, pay us to come and stay for three days. And it was at that point, we didn't have much money, but we realized that we could take uh, our two daughters and my nephew, who was living with us at the time, and take them with us, and they could hang out in the... Uh, um, pool and the, I mean, it was like, had a lazy river and all that kind of, it was a crazy uh, water park behind, the, right behind the hotel and they could hang out there while we were in our sessions. And then when that was over, we could stay, extend the trip for a couple of days and actually go to Disney and SeaWorld. So um, being the parents that we are, we didn't want to tell them directly. Uh, so we decided to create a puzzle. And uh, this, was, this was much better in theory than practice, but the idea was uh, creating this word puzzle where they would put together the words, basically, or the letters, and, and, and uh, come up with, we are going to Disney World and see, uh, Disneyland and SeaWorld. And what I thought was going to take about 10 or 15 minutes ended up taking around 45 minutes, I think. I started videoing it, and at some point, I just, like, I kept videoing because I was like, I don't think they're ever going to get this. They, at this point, they, I mean, cause, partially because they were kids, and they just started guessing, right? They were like, we're going to blank, we're going to blank, where are we going? You know, and they're just super excited. Uh, but finally, they got the, the, the signs. They, they got the pieces and put it together and could see that we were going to Disney World and SeaWorld. And, and it was a great uh, vacation for us as a family. Um, what the Gospel of John has been doing, is doing, and, and, and today in particular very, even uses the language of it, is building out a, a picture, giving us signs, that's the language of actually verse 11, signs, of, of who Jesus is. So that by the time we finish, by the time we get to John 20, 
um, later on, the cross and the resurrection, where, where John the apostle says, I've written all these things so that you may know Jesus and you might see him and know him as King of kings and Lord of lords and have life in his name, basically, is what he says. And so we're building out this picture, and today is the first really big sign, if you will. The word sign shows up in verse 11, and, and he, John prefers this over miracles, which we'll hear in a moment, but it's John's first um, clue to who Jesus is. One of the best commentaries out there on John, and I'm not recommending it for you, but just this used among a lot of pastors and uh, theologians, is uh, a a big commentary by D.A. Carson uh, in the Pillar commentary series. And uh, Carson says this, he goes, John prefers the simple word signs. Jesus's miracles are never simply naked displays of power, still less neat conjuring trips Uh, tricks to impress the masses, but signs, significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith. And if you want a definition of signs, that last phrase, um, significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith, that's the definition of signs. And John uses the word signs seven times through his book, very intentionally, uh, to draw this out. This is the first of the seven signs that our passage today. Uh, as the f- first, um, in following on last week's call of, this, of the disciples, this starts to reveal more of Jesus. See, he wasn't even really going public last week when he called the disciples. He was, uh, he, if you remember, he had encountered John the Baptist, and uh, he had called a couple of disciples, but he's not out here teaching. He's not out here preaching. He's not out here doing miracles or anything public yet. And this, uh, this wedding at Cana is the beginning of his public ministry. Picking up on the creation theme from John 1, this sign helps us to see what kind of uh, new creation Jesus is bringing, why he brings it, and how he brings it. That's the outline for today. Uh, uh, What kind of new creation Jesus brings, why he brings it, and how he brings it. First, let's see what kind of new creation Jesus brings. This wedding feast at Cana would have been maybe eight, uh, we're not exactly positive where Cana is, but we know where Nazareth is, and we know that it was in that area. There's a couple of possible locations, but no more than maybe eight miles from where Jesus grew up. So this wasn't, you know, a long distance away. This was still in the area uh, that he had grown up. And it seems like Jesus kind of picked a random event uh, for his first miracle, but there's a significance here in Jesus's first miracle being at a wedding. Weddings play an important role throughout scripture. If you don't have a, a background in the Bible, um, this, is, this is one of the themes you can actually, you could look at through the entire Bible is weddings. The Bible begins with a wedding in Genesis 2, where God creates man and woman and brings them together and declares them to be married. <clears throat> and then the Bible ends with another wedding in the book of Revelation, the wedding between Christ and his church. Um, and it's going to be a huge wedding feast. So it's significant that Jesus' first public miracle is at a wedding. If you look at it in light of John 1, if you remember our first week in John, uh, in the beginning of John 1, echoes Genesis, right? It says, in the beginning was, was, God, was uh, the Word, and the Word was God, the Word was with God. And, and so what he's doing here is beginning his gospel by talking about creation, and now in Genesis 2, or John 2, his first public miracle is at a wedding, Genesis 2, is a wedding 
right? So you can, you can see a little bit of the parallels here. In this, uh, you can meet, see more clearly that Jesus isn't just some human leader or prophet or Messiah, but he's a king of a new creation that he is ushering in through his life, ministry, and ultimately through his death and resurrection. And this is a new creation under a new covenant relationship. And just like Ephesians 5 says that all human marriage is meant to be a sign pointing to the love of Christ and his church, this wedding that he's at, Jesus very intentionally chose for his first miracle to be a sign of the new creation that he would bring. In this story, Jesus assumes the role uh, of master of feasts, not, not uh, that there wasn't one, there already was one, but we're going to find out he blew it. Uh, he was in big trouble. Uh, the whole party was in huge trouble. There was going to be a lot of shame and guilt, but Jesus steps in and assumes the role as a new master of feast, providing for everyone. He was taking on the responsibility for everyone and what was happening. In Jesus' times, uh, weddings were not like today. Most weddings today, I've done a lot over the years. You know, you got your rehearsal, uh, rehearsal, rehearsal dinner, and then the next day you've got the wedding, you've got, you know, roughly four or five hours of photos, and then there's like an appetizer where they like feed you some, you know, little bite of something, and three hours later you eat a meal. Um, <laughs> I'm joking. It, but most weddings are seriously like maybe two hours on Friday, uh, the, the, before the day before the wedding, and then, you know, you got your wedding, and even with photos in between, it's like maybe four or five hours, you know, from beginning to end of, of everything. That's not how Jewish people did weddings. That's not weddings in ancient Middle Eastern uh, culture. Um, it was much more significant. They would last a week or sometimes even two. Presents were given between people, uh, and the master of feasts was expected to supply plenty of food and wine for the entire feast and festival. Now, I don't want you to miss something. Jesus is the Lord of the new creation, decided to go to a wedding festival, a wedding feast for his first public miracle. That should tell us something about Jesus, right? I don't think, that there's nothing in the gospels, nothing in the life of Jesus that would say this, it, it doesn't say, it, he just so happened to be at this wedding and he just so happened to have this happen and he just so happened, it, it, it's written like Jesus knew what he was doing. He knew where he was. He knew what was going to happen. But what a picture of Jesus here. Jesus wasn't some somber, serious person. He was invited to a wedding with his disciples. And if you've never been around sort of Middle Eastern people when they party, it's not a somber, quiet event where everyone sits around and, and you know, discusses things very subdued, right? This is a wedding feast. Imagine all of the things in your mind, the images of, of, of dancing, of, of celebrating, of, of a demonstrative culture, right? And this is Jesus, and again, how do you picture Jesus in your mind here? This was a party, and Jesus came as a first century Jewish man. Yes, God's son, but he came in a culture to a people as a person with a culture, and he was a Jewish man in the first century. Do you think he was sitting over in the corner reflecting on the Torah while everybody was drinking and dancing? And he thinks like, this is just a waste of time. I'm going to bide my time till the wine runs out, and then I'll step in and provide, and then I'll just go back to reflecting on the Torah. Right? Like, I actually love that there's a chosen episode of this, and it's like, I think that's what Jesus was like. 
that, that he was out there dancing with people. He was out having a good time. And the son of God did not think this was a waste of time. I don't know if you think of Jesus this way. I don't know if you perceive Jesus this way, but Jesus loved to celebrate. He loved to have a joyful celebration of food, family, and friends. In fact, if you look back in the Old Testament, the people of God are actually commanded to have festivals and feasts, right? It's not even optional. It's like, this is the law. You will have fun. You will party for seven days. You know, like, it's, it's like God wants us to experience joy. And it doesn't have to be joy as in worshiping in the temple, right? Like one of the problems we've done is we've really created this sacred secular divide, especially in the West of like, well, somehow I'm really worshiping God when I'm there on Sunday, but I'm not really worshiping God when, you know, my community group goes out and has a big dinner and eats good food and has good wine together. No, bowling night can be worship. I know you're like, really? Yes, yes. I think Jesus loves that stuff. I think Jesus picked this on purpose. And it's one of the reasons when I started the church, I come from a very kind of traditional church culture. I had pastored in Kentucky. And to be honest, the members, when they members met for member meetings, it felt a little bit more like a session of Congress with Robert's Rules of Order than it did a family get-together. And so from the very beginning, I said, and, and the early leadership was in on it as well, when our member, our covenant membership of COA gets together, we're going to have fun. Not to say we don't have to deal with serious things. Sometimes we have to have very serious conversations. But we, we don't want that to be the mood that, that we're just serious all the time. So our, sometimes it's our, our covenant member get together is a, is a big cookout barbecue for a few hours in a backyard during the summer, during the summer. And, and during uh, Christmas, when Christmas comes, we have our member Christmas party. We dress up, we go to another location, we decorate, we, uh, we have great food catered, we have good wine, we have a DJ. Uh, and we, and one, it's one of my favorite moments of the year to see like all the members out there, like from the oldest to like the little kids out on the dance floor hanging out. And I'm like, this is what Jesus, Jesus loves this, right? This is where Jesus would be. He'd, he'd be like, these are my people, right? Like he is a joyful God and he brings joy. That is the kingdom he's bringing in. Some of you don't, who, who uh, grew up in a legalistic church background, it's hard, it's hard to imagine God this way or Jesus this way, right? You think of God as this cosmic killjoy. He's up there to stop everyone from having fun. And he sent his son Jesus just to you know, come around the earth and enforce that, right? So just, okay, we got to stop that. We're just supposed to be serious all the time. God made us as fully orbed human beings with incredible emotion, emotional complexity and the ability to experience great joy. And so that's part of it. For some of you who don't, go, don't have a church background or maybe even have been hurt by church, you've seen Christians in churches act in really ugly, hurtful ways. Or maybe you know that Christian coworker you have and you're like, she's anything but joyful. Like I think all the other emotions, but never joy, right? Like we, we, can, be, we can look at people and begin to judge Jesus by it rather than looking at what Jesus, the kind of kingdom he was bringing in, the new creation he's bringing in, and using that to look at people. Because ultimately, it's not about the kind of, of new creation that the church is ushering in. God help us if it's up to us. But if Jesus is ushering in and creating this, 
new world, this new life, and he brings joy, then we can count on it. Jesus loved to party with people. He was actually accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. Why? Well, you, you can't accuse somebody of being a glutton and a drunkard if they're not eating and drinking with people. And that was part of it. He did it with everybody. He, he was like, hey, let's go. I'll hang out with these people, tax collectors and prostitutes. I'll go sit at fair, the, the table, the religious leaders, and we'll eat a big feast, and I'll talk to them. He hung out with everybody. I, I briefly want to address this because I think it's important in this context. Jesus never got drunk. Big difference. The Bible condemns drunkenness unequivocally as a sin. And then it gives us multiple stories of really dumb, stupid things people do when they get drunk, like ruin their family, right? The alcohol today, of today is actually much more potent due to the invention of distillation. Even the wine, there's arguments that the wine had the capacity, has a higher alcohol content today than it did during Jesus' time. So, I'm not saying Jesus wouldn't drink today. I'm saying that as Christians today, we actually have a higher responsibility to be more careful because it's a lot easier to, I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. There was a, I was with some friends in Florida a couple weeks ago when I was speaking and, um, well, it was about three hours before I was speaking <laughs> and I was sitting, uh, they have a little pool by the, in their backyard, so like everybody in Orlando. And, and so I was sitting out by the pool, enjoying some sunshine uh, before we head into winter. And I got a, got a canned drink and I, uh, I started drinking it. And then my friend was like, hey, you should look at the content on that. And then I looked up and it was like 9.5. And so I was like, okay, this is dangerous because it's really good. Like, and you do not taste any, it's not strong at all. I was like, oh, this is scary. I should not drink this before I speak, you know? So, <laughs> uh, but it's, we have to be more careful. And, and, you, and I know people ask, some people ask me sometimes, what is, you know, uh, how much can I drink and, and uh, not be drunk? And I'm like, I think we ought to ask the question. That's, that's a wrong way. You're asking, where's the line? Where's the line? Where's the line? I think a better question is to ask yourself, how can I honor God when I drink? And so if there's a point in your drinking where you don't think you can actually honor God in that moment with other people or with if he were to walk in there, then I think you're drunk. <laughs> so I would encourage you to think about that rather than having some hard and fast rule of like what sin looks like. I can tell you, certainly we can tell you when somebody has crossed that line but I'm not sure how to tell when you're getting up to that line, which means we have to ask ourselves deeper questions. But it can be hard to think of the Lord of creation coming down to inner creation as a human being and then participating in something as common as a wedding. I wonder if you see Jesus that way. Like would, if, if Jesus came and were to like walk among us and live among us right now for a week or a month or a year, would he want us to would he be like, hey, you know what? They got that new restaurant downtown. They've got such good food. I've heard they got a great wine list. Let's, let's all go, you know? Is it weird to think Jesus would actually like be like, yeah, let's do that, you know? Or, or, or that he would love that evening with your CG where you guys eat and laugh and play card games or whatever for a whole evening. Well, we didn't, wor we didn't have any worship, you know? We didn't read our Bibles, so... Like, Jesus created us to be fully orbed human beings with full lives and full experiences. And, and Jesus loves to bring joy 
This is one of the reasons, if you think about it, in the, the, uh, Luke 2, when the angel announced that Jesus is born, uh, being born, he says, it is good news of great joy for all people. Galatians 5 tells us the fruit of the Spirit, or to phrase it another way, the evidence of the new creation in us begins with love, but what's the second fruit? Joy. Right? And I just want to ask you as a, Christ, as a Christian here today, is that you? Do you feel guilty sometimes when you're enjoying things? Now, if, if you're like, like numbing yourself, yes, you probably should stop, right? <laughs> if you're distracting yourself from life by just like, yeah, going 100 miles an hour at fun, that's not healthy. But do you somehow feel like those moments where you're full of joy and just enjoying the common things of life with friends, family, enjoying a walk on a beautiful day. Like, is that, is that a place where Jesus, you feel like you're honoring Jesus? Because I think it is. This is a picture of a new creation full of joy. That's what he is bringing. The second uh, point we see here is we see why he brings this new creation. At this wedding, there's a shortage. This wedding was a big deal. And running out of wine well before the end was an unbelievably big deal. This isn't our culture. So you, you throw a wedding here in the city somewhere or somewhere out of the city, and you're, you know, you've, got your, you've got your reception going, and then the bartender's like, hey, we're, you know, we're, we've already hit the last case. We only got a couple bottles left. That's when you grab your first, best man, you give him your credit card, and you say, go buy me some wine, right? And he heads down to the liquor store, and he buys you know, cases of wine, brings it back. Nobody even knows. There were no liquor stores back then. <laughs> this wine would have been ordered in advance, a supply that would have been thought to be enough, and there was no backup. There was no way to mitigate or change the situation. And as embarrassing as that might feel, that's still not enough for us to remotely feel the weight of the shame involved in what's happening. You see, this was an honor-shame culture. Some of you know what that's like. That's your culture. You grew up in that, where, where it's not about the individual, except the fact that the individual contributes to the honor of the family. But that individual also has the power to bring shame to the family. But the value of the family is supreme. Therefore, the individual always is thinking about that, honoring their family, building the family honor. Imagine a small, tight-knit community where people have known each other their whole lives. You've got aunts and uncles and cousins and everybody else around. And basically you, ha you get married and you throw a party for the entire village. All the people you know, everyone you know is at this wedding, at this party. And you are the master of feasts and you are supposed to supply for everyone for the whole feast. And you're just, everybody's having a great time. And then it, it hits you and you realize we're not even going to be close on the wine. Maybe it got bigger than he thought it was going to be, but this master of feasts was about to experience deep personal shame and guilt, which would then extend to his family for the months and years ahead. Have you ever lived in a small town? Do people ever forget what you, when you blew it? Never, right? And so this shame that would have been brought on this family, on this man in, in this tight-knit community is, is massive. Overwhelming amounts of shame and then guilt to follow. And in this context, Mary 
uh, comes to Jesus. She realizes what's happening, and, and as an older woman and probably connected with the family in some way, she, she comes to Jesus and says, verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, before we get to Jesus's actions, I want to address uh, the, uh, you know, giant elephant in the room. Woman. Let me ask you a question. Any of you, you're talking to your mom, your mom asks you, you know, comes to you about a need and you're like, woman, what does this have to do with me? Kids, try, you should try that. It's going to go real well, right? <laughs> no, it's not going to go well at all. But, we, but this is a perfect classic example of the difference between another language and, and Greek language, that culture, and this culture. Now, he does not address her as mother, which is important. I'll talk to that, about that in a moment. But this word woman is not a derogatory word to lead with. Okay, he, not like in our culture. Um, and, and in fact, he actually uses this word later when he's on the cross. And John, the author of the Gospel of John, he looks at John and says, uh, behold your mother. And then he says to his mom, woman, behold your son. So even in that, he was tender. So this is not a, a word, you know, of, of, uh, of uh, a derogatory word, but it is a change in the relationship. It's signifying a change in how Jesus is relating to Mary. He's beginning his public ministry, and now his highest priority is not, hey, mom, what do you want? Whatever you want, mom, right? He has a responsibility, ultimately, to go to the cross. Not that he has no responsibility or care for his mother, as we'll see, but he is fundamentally changing this relationship. Um, and we can see this even changes how Mary relates to Jesus. Despite the fact that Jesus was her son, Mary still had to come uh, to the father through her own son, through faith. We'll see that in just a moment. But the second thing Jesus uh, said um, is, did you, I don't know if you caught the weird phrase, my hour has not yet come. Um, I don't know if you're like thinking, was he looking at his watch? And it's like, it's not quite time yet, you know, or something. But this is a phrase that John likes to use, uh, that Jesus used. And John included the, includes this as a theme through his gospel. So the hour is the, the time of his uh, betrayal, arrest, uh, beating, execution, and resurrection. It's the, it's the culmination of his life. And so you'll hear him make these references through his life of the, uh, in the Gospel of John, my hour's not here yet, the hour's not yet come. Um, and so this is a, something John likes to use to help set us up for when the hour uh, will come. Jesus' response to his mother is that now is not the time for me to have a big public ministry. So so if you imagine Jesus's other miracles and how he did them, like if this had happened later on, you'd expect him to kind of walk into the middle of the feast and touch all of the wine jars, you know, where everybody's cup gets touched and becomes an endless glass of wine, right? Like he can't drink it all, right? And, and so you'd think him to, to do that, but he says, now's not the time for me to go public. Now's not the time for me to begin to draw so much attention to myself that people are gonna begin to flock to me and gonna expedite me getting to the cross. There's too much I need to teach. There's too much I need to do in the meantime. But listen to Mary's faith, Right? I said Mary had to start relating to Jesus, not simply as her son that she had carried, but also as the savior of the world and her savior. Listen to what she says in verse five. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I think that's pretty awesome. Like 
she's like, she knew that even with Jesus saying what he was saying, I'm not going public, she trusted him so implicitly and knew he had the power to make a difference. She just looks at the servants and says, whatever he says. Like, I love that. Just such a picture of faith right there. So back to why Jesus is bringing this new creation. He sees the shame and the guilt of this family and he did something about it. This is the picture of human inadequacy. We cannot sustain the joy, right? We can't sustain the joy. We are haunted by our own shame and guilt. Like the master of the feast, we, we've run out of wine. <laughs> we cannot supply. We don't have enough for ourselves, let alone to supply the people around us. We want to cover it up like Adam and Eve with the fig leaves, but we know deep down that we are impure and that we simply are not enough. And ultimately, this life can't give us what we deeply need in our souls. One of Ernest Hemingway's biographers wrote it this way about him. From the time of his boyhood in Oak Park, Illinois, to his teenage summers in northern Michigan, Ernest Hemingway went after everything life could give him. He became a reporter with the Kansas City Star, served as an ambulance driver in World War I, spent years in Europe, and was ultimately involved in the Spanish Civil War. Uh, his famous friendships ran all the way from the bullfighter Monolith to the novelist F. Scott Fitzgerald. In whatever he did, sports, warfare, romance, he went for all of it. And of course, he was brilliant. His great stories, especially the greatest of all, The Old Man and the Sea, show his unique genius. He is a man who did it all. Hemingway went after the wine of life, but there came a time when the wine ran out. Ultimately, there's a time that the wine runs out for all of us. It does. And it might be that we numb ourselves with our career until we reach that point where we've gotten to where we actually thought we would be happy and, and, and that would sustain us. And that lets us down. And maybe it's, it's that longing for uh, a family and that's the thing. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have that and that's going to be great. And it's a gift and you're going to enjoy it for a while. And then the wine's going to run out. If that is your source of ultimate joy. So Jesus brings the new creation because of our shortfall. Finally, we see how he brings this new creation. And this gets to the actual miracle. Jesus sees six stone water jars, um, which were used for the Jewish rites of purification. They're very large containers carved out of stone. They weren't, if you're thinking about what they might look like, they weren't pottery because they, were, they would have been so large. And, and in um, Jewish, in the Old Testament, pottery can be defiled, but stone jars uh, didn't have the same ability to be defiled. And so these were massive 20 to 30 gallon jars made of stone, significant. These were ceremonial jars for washing. In the Old Testament, the underlying principle that God is holy and righteous and pure, and we are not, and we are unrighteous and impure. So there were uh, cleanliness laws that were practiced. Um, and by the way, regardless of how you feel about any of the Old Testament laws, uh, Jewish was one, uh, the Jewish people were among, if not the most clean ancient people on earth. They, they didn't have the same diseases because they were forced to wash their hands before. <laughs> And they didn't have soap and water, but if you don't have soap and water, washing your hands, at least rinsing them off is helpful, right? Maybe get some of those germs off of there. But they were a clean people. 
Um, and God had established that and the sacrifices as part of a way of, of mitigating and dealing with their sin and their unrighteousness. Something had to be done to correct this. So these stone jars for purification were taken over by Jesus. Interesting, he takes the jars that were used to fulfill Old Testament laws of purification and said, no, we're going to use them to party. He commandeers the Old Testament uh, structures and instead brings in joy, filling them up with 180 gallons of water, uh, 180 gallons of, of good wine. The servants filled it up with water like he asked, and he transforms it into wine. And not just wine, right? Like it's taken to the master of the feast. The master of the feast is like, whoa, wait a second. I told him to um, put the good stuff out first, but this is the, this is the good stuff. This is the really good stuff. So Jesus made an overabundance of really good wine. Not that stuff you buy in a box and put in the fridge and, and nurse for a month, right? Like actual good wine that people would enjoy. He actually ended up becoming the master of feasts, taking over the festival and providing for it himself. I love Alexander Pope's, uh, the English poet, 18th century English poet, says, the conscious water saw its master and blushed. <laughs> a new day is here, a day of celebration, of joy, of partying, of feasting, of wedding. Wine is a standard image in the Old Testament of the new covenant blessings to come. Yeah, especially in Joel. Whereas in the ritual washing of the, the day, there were all sorts of special occasions require special washing. Jesus now takes, takes all of that and turns it into wine. I do want to briefly comment about the miracle because I realize, especially in our modern culture, I would argue anywhere in the U.S., but especially in our modern uh, Western Boston culture, uh, we tend to see a lot of things like this with Skepticism. Um, and many people are okay with Jesus' teaching and they like his kindness and his mercy and serving the poor, but like when it comes to these kinds of things, there's a skepticism. And I'm not saying that skepticism is, is evil. I think that there can be a very healthy skepticism. Um, but you have to understand we are being shaped, we have been discipled, informed by a culture um, largely built in by the, the scientific method. The scientific method says if you can't test it, prove it ultimately, then it must not be real. Um, and that's been, uh, it, it's, it's gone from a healthy skepticism to what I would describe as an exclusionary mindset. Scientific method has no room for the supernatural. It can't, right? I recognize that. We, we all recognize that. Um, and so it says that if you cannot use the scientific method to verify it, the subtle lie that it's slipped in is if you can't test it and prove it, it must not be real. And many have bought into that. So the approach to science, which is good, and by the way, many of the great Christian minds, uh, many of the great uh, scientific minds in history have been brilliant Christians, and some of you are scientists, and you do not see a disparity between your faith and studying the known world. But there are those who say that if you can't study it like science, then it simply must not be true. You can't approach it, and therefore the miracle has to be rejected. But the problem is that you're not, even when this is presented, I would encourage you to use science to evaluate whether it might be true. If you can't prove the supernatural, which we can't, using science, is, is science helpful at all in this? 
for example, literary science that would look at how it's written and see if it's written like it's true or whether it's written like a myth. And, and in, uh, about 20 years ago, a Duke English professor named Reynolds Price put out a book called Three Gospels in which he wrote a translation for most of um, three of the Gospels. And he wrote a lengthy introduction to each. In his introduction to the Gospel of John, uh, he addresses the passage for today. He says, if you read this passage, if you read this, John 2, and you're a writer yourself, you know this must have happened. The way he puts it, he says, if you're inventing a biography of Jesus Christ, you would never invent for your inaugural sign a miraculous solution to a mere social oversight. The only logical explanation for this particular sign being the first one is that it must have happened. Reynolds says it, Reynolds Price says it this way. I, as a writer, know this. If I was inventing a life of Jesus, I would want to make sure the first miracle was extremely quintessential. Read the story, even if you don't believe the miracle happened, read the story and t- ask yourself, does it read like, it, like someone reporting something they saw? Or does it read like somebody trying to you know, blow up a story? It reads like someone reporting what they saw. Jesus makes water out of wine. He brings joy out of shame, celebration out of sadness. He is the new Lord of the feast. But he also wants us to see him as the new and ultimate bridegroom. In the Old Testament, God pictures himself as a groom, bridegroom, and Israel as a bride, over and over and over again, revealing something very important. Not simply like, hey, we're in relationship, but he chose the marriage relationship to symbolize, I want to have a deep, personal, loving intimate relationship with my people. And I want them to have that with me. So, so God chose this image. And then Jesus picks for his first event, public ministry, public uh, miracle, a wedding. Jesus had, has also a vision for another wedding. And this wedding in John 2 is a sign of that wedding. It's not just the past in the Old Testament that's a wedding is pictured. It's not just in the Gospels here that Jesus said things like, as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast, speaking about himself. It is the culmination of history that he's pointing to in John 21. Listen to what John 21, and this is John, same writer of the Gospel of John, by the way, which makes me think why he actually chose to include this story in John 2. But at the end of Revelation, at the end of John's life, Not long before he goes to see the Lord, God gave him a vision, which is in the book of Revelation. But at the end of Revelation, he says this, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. I can say this unequivocally. Every soul, even if they can't even put their finger on it, in this city longs for a a world like that. 
with no more crying, no more pain, no more sorrow. One marked by joy. Other places in Revelation actually straight up picture the wedding feast. So it's a party that Jesus is the groom and he's been preparing. Every longing that you and I have is met in that moment. But the question before us today, looking at John 2, is what shame are you and I carrying today? What inadequacy do you and I feel that we don't want to acknowledge to ourselves, let alone to God? The master of the feast has provided new wine for you. He has taken on the cost of the whole party. Why? Because he wants you to experience deep personal joy with him. That's the new creation that we're invited to. But God has given us some signs as a church now that we can practice, that he wants us to practice, to point to them. The first one he gives us is called baptism. Baptism is a sign of someone who has experienced the new creation. They have come to to believe, as John, it says at the end of uh, verse 11, that the disciples believed. So those who come to believe in Jesus and experience this new wine, this new creation in them, they need a symbol. It needs to be shown. The demonstration of that is the outward sign of baptism. The picture of being going into the grave with Christ, being buried, rising up out of the water, all your sins, all covered, purified, done. A new creation made to dwell with him, to live with him, to know him, to be a part of his people. That's baptism. And and it's something the Bible pictures that can't be done for you. I know some of you were baptized as children, but but this is not something that you're supposed to have someone else recount to you. This is an experience. This is a, a visceral, if you will, just utter experience. You're supposed to taste yourself. You're supposed to feel that water. You're supposed to feel the, the sense of cleansing outwardly that you have had inwardly. No one can give it to you. No one can do it for you. You are given this as a sign. And if you haven't had it, you've missed it. And for every believer, you're given the sign of communion, the blood of Christ, the body of Christ as the feast. He's, literally, this is the precursor. This is the appetizer before the wedding feast. And he's saying every week, this is why we do it every week, come taste, get a little bit of it. Be reminded of the joy, be reminded of the new wine. Be reminded of what I've done to purify you. You don't have to earn my forgiveness. You don't need those jars of purification to make yourself clean again. I have replaced all of that. That's communion. You see why the early church celebrated it as part of a feast? They didn't wait at the end of their gathering and have like a little wafer and a cup. It was part of a feast. They called it the love feast, the agape feast. So we're gonna take in just a moment, if you've not experienced this new creation in Christ, then, then, then the first sign for you is baptism. The first sign for you is to take Christ. Communion is for those who have already experienced that and then are reminded of it weekly. So if you're not a Christian, this next song, this, as, as we take communion, I want you to take Christ. I want you to pray. I want you to ask if any of this is real and if it's real for you. 
And, and if you are a Christian, this next song, I want you to take a moment to prepare your heart, remind your heart of the body and blood of Christ for you and take it with joy. I love, in connection with this text, I heard one commentator say this that just really blessed me. He said, we shall learn that Jesus himself is the true vine and the true wine of joy is in fact the blood of Jesus. The blood of the new covenant poured out for the life of the world. It is that alone which can provide joy in its fullness. So take communion today, not in shame, take it in joy. It is finished. Let's pray. Jesus, what, what would it have been like to be at that wedding with you? To see you smile, to see you embrace others, to see you laugh, to see you eat, to see you dance, to see you rejoice in something as simple as a wedding and to know that you chose that place to be the marker, first sign of what you would do for all of us. I pray we would experience that joy afresh and anew today that every, every Christian in this room would be able to just fix their eyes on you, experience your joy that you have for us, delighting in us as our savior. I pray for those who've not yet experienced that this next song, Lord, the rest of the service will be a time where they seek you, that you invite them in and they turn from their sins, repent from their past, their shame. They lay down their guilt. They look to you who welcome them home and give them new wine. In your name we pray.